Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. This is Jiro Taylor, your host. Today I'm talking to a super fascinating dude who understands all about peak performance, mindfulness, and really actioned, integrated wisdom. He's a guy called Rodney King. He lives in South Africa. I'm talking to him in Johannesburg. He runs uh, three separate companies. One is called Full Contact Living. Um, this is his, his, his coaching business, and he also has two martial arts businesses, and I'll put the links in the show notes. Uh, this is uh, someone who has really you know, experienced uh, the University of Hard Knocks. He grew up um, in government housing in a rough part of Johannesburg in South Africa um, and had a rough upbringing with an alcoholic mother, and he changed his life by immersing himself in martial arts and applying the wisdom that he had learned to develop inner skills, inner strength, inner development. Martial arts taught him about resilience, about dealing with fear, about developing focus. Um, and he's really changed his life. He's doing a PhD in embodied leadership. He's coached special forces in, in South Africa. He um, coaches a wide array of people. He's written a book. He's an impressive guy. And in this conversation, we go really deep into the idea of um, the, the, the yin and the yang, but what that means in a martial perspective. The martial arts, it's not all kicks to the head and kidney punches. It's not what you see on, on UFC. Martial arts, it can be described well by looking at the samurai who were artists as well as warriors. They were masters of tea ceremony, flower arranging, calligraphy, poetry, but they could also chop your head off very easily with a sword. And this idea of embodied femininity, masculinity um, as a warrior is very interesting. And we, talk, we get into that topic. We also get into how we can deal with fear, how we can deal with fear, road rage, all those tough things that we face often in our lives. How can we deal with them um, in a powerful and effective way? And Rodney talks very eloquently about how we can do that. So make sure you stick around. And if you enjoy the show, please uh, go to the show notes uh, on iTunes and leave a review, leave a rating. And I'd really appreciate that. Enjoy the show. Hey, welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast, Rodney. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome, man. So just so the listeners can get uh, grounded on, on where you are. So I'm coming at you from Manly, Australia. And where are you? I am in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, yeah, and it's lo looking to be a really good day. It's been really hot here at the moment. More, it's, We've been through a heat wave supposed to be the hottest uh, time this country has ever experienced, especially in Johannesburg. So oh, really? not great for the water situation, but uh, if wow. you love summer, it's a good place to be. Awesome, man. So you're the first, first guest on the show uh, coming from South Africa. So you have that right. honor. Um, tell us a little bit about um, your passions in life, Rodney. What, 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 get, what gets you all jazzed up and excited um, about living this life? Well, you know, my biggest thing and the thing that I like to focus on is this idea of inner management skills. And where I come to it from is through martial arts because I'm a martial artist. I've been training most of my life. And I put martial arts down as the reason why I have been able to succeed in life. If it wasn't for martial arts, my life likely would have gone in a very different direction. Um, you know, for, for people who don't know much about me, I was brought up in the south of Johannesburg in government housing, very similar to the projects in the United States. So I learned early on in life that how smart you were was irrelevant, but how tough you were was. And uh, when I wasn't kind of dodging the neighborhood bullies, I was dealing with the school bullies. And so my life was pretty messed up when, in the beginning. But as I started training martial arts and as I started to realize that more than the fighting aspect, what martial arts does for you on an inner level, that's really, you know, became the thing that became the catalyst to change my life and steer it in a positive direction. So what, what was it about martial arts in those early days that really helped change the direction of your life? Well, I think initially, you know, like anybody, you go into martial arts because you want to learn how to protect yourself. And obviously where I was living, that was clearly evident and I needed to be able to do that. Um, I didn't have a father in my life. My mom was an alcoholic. 
So I was pretty much left to my own. And so learning how to defend myself was the first initial reason for doing it. But one thing that always kind of stood out in my mind when I remember back as a child, and probably most people listening to this, if they've ever been, you know, you know, ever gone to train in martial arts, they'll recognize this, is I spent uh, probably too much time watching those old uh, Chinese kung fu movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, if you remember back in those movies, there was always this unassuming hero. He wasn't a hero yet, but he was just frail. You didn't have any skills, didn't have any confidence. Maybe there was a neighborhood gang that moved into his village, started beating everybody up and himself, and he realized he had to do something about it. And he went off in search of a teacher. Oftentimes, it was a, an old Chinese uh, master hidden away in a cave or in some <laughs> monastery, and he went to go learn this martial arts. And what was his orig original reason for being there was to learn how to fight. But through their experience, and it was tough training, the teacher always brought it back to becoming more as a human being, always becoming more as a person. And that was always the main focus in many of those movies. And you know, ultimately, that hero would come back. But now knowing how to fight, he no longer wanted to fight. And so when I kind of just think back to when I was growing up and watching those movies outside of the martial arts stuff, which was really cool watching and the fight scenes. I think that was the thing that really drew me was this idea of training martial arts and through martial arts, you could become more. Not only would you physically become better, but you would learn all these other internal skills that would enable you to take on life more proactively. So I guess a couple of things that probably stand out for me there is the idea of being tenacious, resilient, building inner confidence, and being able to take on situations that seem on, you know, on the outside, there's no way that you could take it on. But mm. through having those inner skills, you're able to actually achieve success. And so the realization is, is that it doesn't matter you know, how tough you are on the outside. If you're not tough on the inside, mm. life will always get the better of you. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing that, that, that martial arts for you was it really a, a vehicle for you to absorb some wisdom from, from Eastern philosophy, from all those masters, all those generations of Taoists and Buddhists and whatever they were? Um, but just that lineage uh, was channeled into uh, the, the practice, the martial art. And I think that's such an awesome thing about martial arts that I hope everyone realizes. It's, it's, it's a way to absorb philosophy, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, like I said, I, I grew up in a violent environment with a mom that was an alcoholic and no father. So I didn't really have any direction. I didn't really have any teachers per se. So I see the, the martial arts journey as being my mentor, as being my teacher, where exactly as you're saying, I was able to kind of develop a life philosophy through that training that had I not had that martial arts experience, had I not been so obsessed by it, my life could have gone a very different way. I mean, I know for a fact that many of the kids that I grew up with are now either in prison or have completely derailed their life. And that could have been my future. And, and even when there was a moment there when I was around 17 where my mom in another drunken rage uh, threw me out of the house. So I never finished high school. I never finished school. And I found myself sleeping on a park bench, actually in the same park that I played in as a kid. So I was destitute. I had less than $20 in my pocket, sleeping on a, on a park bench, had nowhere to go. Had, you know, it looked like I was, I was going to, you know, become this, you know, back into the cycle that you often see when you see people coming through poverty and, and bad environments. I was going to become a statistic so to speak. Mm. And I decided that very evening that I wasn't going to do that. And again, had I not already been involved in martial arts, had I not already started developing these inner management tools, who, you know, who would have known what, where I could have gone and, and ended up? Luckily, I didn't end up you know, in, in a really bad mm. place. And I was able to turn that situation around. And I think I've been pretty successful in the end. So definitely that philosophy, as you mm. noted, was really important. Did you did you go through that stage as a as a adolescent, a teenager, where you just wanted to kick ass? And uh... oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, I went through that stage for a while. Actually, it was kind of interesting because once I 
started, you know, really in, embodying this idea of, of, of the fight game and actually being able to do it because most of my life I was the victim. Now when I actually was able to deliver those skills and make them work, there is a negative side to that as well because I call it the red road where you get completely consumed in the negative side of the warrior energy. You mm -hmm. almost get focused on the martial and forget everything else. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a learning process for, for myself as well because you know, as I was a teenager and going into a young adult, I really used that part as well to try to get through life because it seemed that life was a fight and the only way that you could survive it was to fight back. Mm. And I actually spent several years of my life after I got out of the military working outside some of the roughest nightclubs in Johannesburg as the head doorman. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, I can see Which is that. Kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting for me, you know, coming from, from the, the beginning as a child where I was always bullied and intimidated with, by violence to then suddenly find myself where I'm dispensing quote-unquote violence on a nightly basis. Yes, under the guise of the occupation, I could say, yes, you know, most of those people probably deserved to be thrown out and whatever else happened in that time. But what I noticed was is that when you focus purely on the martial side, just the fighting, the very things that you think that that's going to help you overcome, you know, low self-esteem, lack of confidence, fear, mm. actually become worse, which was an interesting phenomena for me because there was a time there where I was at my peak, you know, I, I was teaching martial arts, I was working the door, I had some of the best competitive fighters in South Africa in the mixed martial arts environment, I was winning every single night, nobody was able to beat me, regardless of who stepped on the mat, yet if I look back, that was the time I was the most afraid the most insecure mm. and at my lowest. Although I never told anybody that because I had to put on the tough guys. So you and didn't have the balance. You didn't have the yin and the yang. So Exactly. I'd, I'd lost it. So that idea when, you know, when we started off talking about what really attracted me to martial arts in those old Chinese kung fu movies, mm. what the teacher was doing for the student was making sure that that balance was there and, and, and was part of the process because that teacher knew if he didn't do that, that experience, that martial experience can become a negative thing in your life. And so there was a time when it was that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if we reflect back on warrior cultures, and you know, not a question of it's right or wrong, but just as an example, the samurai, you couldn't just become a samurai. You were born into a samurai family. And so you were destined ultimately to do one thing, to go to battle. And ultimately, that's what you were training for. Yet, you know, from an interesting standpoint, what was always amazing was that they, the elders of those warrior cultures, and specifically the samurai, made their warriors spend an inordinate amount of time on what can be considered the soft skills. You know, oh, things mate, like they were, masters be, of, they were masters of flower exactly. arranging. So you had to be a master of calligraphy, a master of the tea ceremony, mm. the, you know, arranging flowers. Mm. You had to uh, be a master of theater. And I'm saying that, that word master as, as an important kind of jumping spring point because it, you couldn't just be okay at it. You had to be a master at it. And so the question arises then, why would a warrior culture with ultimate goal of going and fighting on the battlefield spend so much time on these soft skills? My theory is, is that the elders of that society figured out early on that if you only train the warrior, the martial side of things, what will happen is the very person that you charge to protect society becomes the very person that destroys it. And so by focusing on these soft skills, you invoke within that person the balance, the art. And yes. so at this stage in my life and where I am now as a martial artist is I like to be called a martial artist artist with an emphasis on the art because my realization was that you're never going to develop those inner skills that often was portrayed in those old Chinese Kung Fu movies if you neglect the art. Absolutely. The difference, I guess, yeah, I suppose the difference today is that I don't expect either myself or my students to be masters in calligraphy or flower arranging, right? But I think there's a way to develop those 
artistic skills, the inner skills, the softer skills, actually on the mat, in the heat of the moment. Say, for example, in sparring. And then that kind of comes into the inner game skills that I typically teach my students on the mat. So how, talk to me about how you can develop that, that yin side or that soft side through actually sparring and being on the mat. So I think one of the most important things there, and this was a lesson that I learned, was that oftentimes the thing that gets you into trouble is not what's going on inside, but it's how you attach to it. So in that sense, I look at, say, emotions as there is no such thing as a good or a bad emotion. The thing that often makes it bad in a person's life is how they define it and the kind of story that they create around it. So if I'm on the mat and I'm not having a really good day and I start attaching a story to the reason why it's not a good day, the emotions and the sensations and the thoughts that are arising, it's that narrative that I'm creating that gets myself into trouble. Mm. Because what it tends to do then is it'll either push you into the future, so maybe you're trying to start to plan you know, what you should be doing next. Maybe you hold on to the past, so you're constantly worried about the mistakes that you've been making. And in each one of those cases, what tends to happen is it moves you away from the present moment. Yes. So one of the inner game skills that I'm trying to teach people and what I had to teach myself was that the place you really want to be is be in the present moment. You want to be mindful of what is arising. And when you're mindful, you allow whatever arises, emotions, feelings, sensations, and thoughts to arise. But with one crucial aspect, you don't judge it. It is what it is. And if you leave out the judgment, you circumvent the story. And so, again, you know, even if I see students in the past, and I know I've been uh, a victim of this as well, is that you always set yourself up as, a, you know, expectations of what you want to achieve. And it's those expectations that get you into trouble. So let me give you an example. You know, maybe I'm, I'm on the mat. There's a group of people watching. I'm not doing so well. The student, in a way, is catching me every five seconds with strikes. I feel that maybe these people are seeing that. Then my ego gets involved in that, and I feel like, damn, you know, I'm the teacher. I shouldn't be able to get hit. Mm. And you start trying to now force the action, try to dominate the, the person in front of you. Oftentimes, it now goes into more of a, an aggressive kind of experience where you're trying to show everybody that you, are, you, you, know, you have the right to be there, that you're better than that person in front of you. That's really where this whole thing starts getting negative, where it becomes dysfunctional. Because in actual fact, you know, that, that experience is it's just an experience, but it's how I'm defining that experience is getting me into trouble and causing me stress in my life. Yeah, so and it's so not the experience I, itself. It's always the narrative exactly. that our, mon, our mind likes to weave around the experience. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic, this. So this is basically uh, talking about the the idea of reality and perceived reality like we don't where do you stand on this in terms of what our actual reality is because so much so many people out there are living in this sort of mind warped fear tainted world which is spun by their own insecurities right yeah uh, absolutely so i mean in that example where i'm creating what i think is reality by suggesting to myself that look those people are looking at me they're probably looking at me and they think that I don't actually have any game or skills because here's a student who's not even at my level, essentially kicking my butt, right? Mm -hmm. But is that really true? Well, first of all, it's not because the, rea the real reality is, is that I don't have any access to the people on the side in their heads. I don't really know what they're thinking. Yeah. I'm assuming, I'm being a fortune teller. Mm -hmm. And so much of our time is spent creating illusions mm -hmm. of what reality is because we spend so much time having those kinds of thoughts where we think that somebody thinks this way about us or you know they have this kind of idea of who we are yes. but that's not really true if we've never ever had dialogue with them and we've never had a conversation no so, if, so for example if is. if somebody cuts us off in traffic and 
uh, we get all pissed off because they're an irresponsible driver and we start running our mouth and we start feeling this anger, then all of a sudden it's like we're living in this, this uh, virtual reality which is created by our mind. The actual reality could be that that person um, is driving to hospital because they've just been in an accident or they've just had a you know awful news or whatever it might be. Um, but we'll never, we're never going to know that reality, right? Exactly. So how you manage yourself moment to moment, I think is really the defining characteristic of being able to be more real and be more authentic. So even in your example there where you talk about road rage, essentially what it is, mm. what I discovered was that, you know, th that kind of driving to work or going to the store, whatever that may be, these are typically our mundane experiences or what we consider our mundane. It's our day-to-day -day kind of things that we always have to do. But what I noticed is that if you don't get those things right, if you don't manage yourself in a better way in those experiences in the mundane, then the really big things in life, the things that you really can cause you a lot of trouble, you will never be able to take on. So if you can't even manage getting to work without getting pissed off and flying off the handle and constantly going into road rage, how are you really going to deal with the big things in life? Mm. And so one of the starting blocks and suggestions that I have for everybody, and it's something that I did myself, was get the small things right first. Oftentimes we overlook the small things. Oh, it's, just the, it's just the stuff I do every day. It's just the mundane. I'm not going to take any notice of that. But I would argue that you take all of those smaller experiences over time, that really, if you bring them together, starts defining who you really are and how you're able to actually be in the world. It's and our if training you can't ground, get those right, Yeah, it is our training it's ground. It's our training if ground, those, those little right, things. Yeah, yeah if, if we exactly. can't manage our own state of mind uh, during everyday, everyday life, you know, just, just run-of-the-mill stuff, then, then, then really you're right. How are we going to uh, approach those large challenges? And, I, and this is really about mindfulness in everyday life, isn't it? It's such a potent topic. Uh, people think, oh, I've got to go on the meditation retreat to learn about my mind. Or I've got to, I've got to do this. I've got to go on a quest where I, where I go and find a shaman and I do all this sort of thing. And maybe that's an awesome part of your life experience. But let's not forget the everyday. The, you know, every day we've got a chance to learn and develop, don't we, Rodney? Absolutely. There's a couple of interesting points there is that in my experience, you know, oftentimes when people do go off and do a retreat and, and as good as it is, many, many times just going off for a couple of days and being immersed in, say, a mindful experience doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be able to transfer that skill over to your life. Mm. Because as we're talking now is that mindfulness, as an example, which is, you know, a way that you approach everything in life is something that you have to do constantly. It's not something that you can choose to do every now and, then, and now and then because, you know, you're also working with a, a mind that has been so conditioned from the moment you came onto this planet. And depending on how that mind has been conditioned, has laid such deep pathways mm -hmm. that it's going to take an inordinate amount of time and practice to replace that with a new pathway. You're telling me four days at a meditation retreat and I do my 20 minutes yoga a day isn't going to do it? <laughs> I don't think so, to be honest. And it's interesting for me because, you know, I said I never finished high school, but I'm actually in the midst of completing my PhD. And my research topic, my research focus is on this idea of mindfulness in action. So in what I'm saying there is, is that Sure, there's mindfulness training specifically done oftentimes through meditation where people sit on a zafu in a nice, you know, candlelit room where everything is calm, everything is silent. But is life like that? That Absolutely experience not. of sitting on a zafu is 20 minutes of a 24-hour day where the rest of those hours are nothing like that. So we can argue is that it's very easy to be calm, collected, and mindful in a cave somewhere. But try to do that if I dropped you, say, for example, in the middle of New York. That's right. You know, where, the, where it's hustle, bustle, you've got to meet deadlines, you know, especially if you're in a work environment, your boss is on you all the time, you know, kids are giving you a hard time, you're trying to manage 
you're trying to multitask 50 different things. You're trying to give, you know, your kids attention, but you know, you've got deadlines at work. You can go on and on and on. That is a highly stressed, charged environment, very different to sitting on the Zafu or in a cave somewhere in Tibet. Now the question is, can you actually be mindful in action? And so this kind of almost comes back 360 degrees, why I love martial arts, because in a way, martial arts training for me, especially in a performance environment like sparring, is very similar in nature to, to life. You know, in a sparring environment, you have to deal with this opponent that's essentially trying to beat you. It's unpredictable. It's chaotic. You're dealing with a lot of emotional content that comes up, a lot of thinking that oftentimes, as we talked about earlier, might get you into trouble because you start trying to predict your next move or you're holding on to the mistakes you just made. And so anybody listening to this can see all those things I just mentioned are things that we deal with on a daily basis. The goal really is, can I get you to be in that environment, but instead of falling into those traps, to be mindful in the moment, in the midst of action. And that's one of the major processes and approaches to the way that I teach. And that's the reason why I love martial arts, because in a way, it's a ver kind of a mini version of life. Everything mm -hmm. that happens in life can happen on the mat. And so if I can teach people how to be mindful in action, even though this other person is trying to quote unquote beat them, if they can get it right there, they have an embodied experience that becomes something that they are then able to transfer into their everyday life. And I think that idea of having an embodied experience is very important because there's one thing when we talk about thinking about something versus doing something. You know, you can, think of, you can think about something that you say, well, you know, next time I'm faced with this kind of situation, this is how I should approach it. In a, you know, and you're thinking about it in a rational kind of way. But one of the key ingredients that's missing there is the doing part. So if you can find experiences that take this idea of thinking that what you should be doing, but actually apply it in action. And for example, martial arts in, in my world and inspiring allows myself and my students to do that. That doing part becomes an embodied experience. And anytime you have an embodied experience, it's the kind of experience that you never really lose. I mean, if, even if you haven't been on a bicycle for the last 20 years, it's the last time you were on a bike was when you were a kid. But I brought a bike out. Now, most people who haven't ridden for 20 years probably can get on the bike and within a couple of seconds can be riding again. You know, maybe they can't do the cool tricks they did when they were seven, but they can definitely ride the bike. Why is that? Because I could give you a telephone number now of somebody and you could forget that within the next five seconds. But yet, you haven't forgotten how to ride a bike. I think for many people, and I know for myself, when I got my first bicycle, it was a very uh, embodied experience. It was a very emotional in the sense that it gave me freedom. You know, I could get to my friends. I could get around the neighborhood. Um, there was a lot of embodied processes that came with that. And because I embodied that experience, it's something that I never forgot. Mm, and so I'm a, strong, I'm a strong advocate then that if you really want to make real sustainable positive change in your life, you need to stop talking about it and you need to find ways to do it. Mm, ways would... that are manageable, you know, and this, I guess, starts stepping into your main thesis, which is the idea of the flow state. That's right. You know, so, you so yeah, choose would... things to be you know, internally motivated. You know, you, you take on a task that stretches your skill, but you know, almost to the limits, but not so much that you're totally anxious. That's right. That you have short-term goals, that you get immediate feedback. Right. Um, if if I think about sparring, all of those things are there. Let's talk more about embodiment. So just so people who are listening understand what we're talking about. We're basically talking about um, coming into our body, bringing our awareness into our body, using our body, like the experience of riding the bike. That is not a cognitive process or it's not only a cognitive process. It's yeah. an embodied process. So what we're actually doing through that process is activating our body. And when people talk about intuition, some people also talk about body intelligence. 
um, and some people will talk to you about gut intelligence and vibrations that come from our heart. All of these, all these topics are basically the topic of embodiment. And this is why people who start doing martial arts or they start going to yoga or they start doing qigong, often they, they experience profound transformation in a very quick period of time because for the first time in their life, they're coming out of their thinking mind and they're getting centered in, in their body. So it's a super powerful part of uh, full potential living. And I'm, gr- I'm glad you brought it up, Rodney. Yeah, and I think also crucially there is looking at yourself as mind and body are one. Mm. And we've been, you know, especially in the Western world, we've been kind sold of alive. Fed, this, <laughs> sold alive, fed this idea that, you know, that the thinking mind is separate to the body. And that, you know, if, if you're not thinking it, then it's not real. Um, and so the interesting thing about the experience of martial arts that I've had is that I've realized that just because you have all these feelings and sensations that arise, just because you're feeling a certain way doesn't define the outcome of the performance. Mm. So I could have feelings and sensations that typically I might label as fear or anxiety. And it's okay to even acknowledge that it's fear and anxiety. Where I found the problem comes in and for myself and for my students is once you create a story around the fear and the anxiety. I'm afraid because. Mm. I'm feeling anxious because. And then we go on to this narrative and then we get stuck in this feedback loop in our head where we constantly repeat that story over and over and over. Mm. And so the realization for me when we talk about being mindful is having the tools to short circuit the story. So I feel the sensations and the feelings, and then I even notice the thoughts arise. But I'm looking at it as an observer. I'm accepting it. You know, I'm curious about it, but I'm not creating this narrative. You start to realize then that you can still achieve what you set out to achieve. And so the realization on the mat is even though this feeling arises that typically you recognize as anger, you don't need to express your next move with anger. If you just allow the anger to arise and you don't create a judgment around it, it just does what it needs to do, goes where it needs to go. Typically what happens is it loses its power. Mm. Our emotions you just find become them, processed. That's how we process exactly. emotions. That's right. Exactly. Through so our you body. process the emotions and they, they go through your body. They do what they need to do. You start to realize that they're all essential. They're all there for a reason. Without those emotions, you would not have the experience of being human. Absolutely And so right. this idea of thinking as somehow separate to the body is a fallacy. And right. in actual fact, there's a lot of great research coming out now to show that if you change the way that you hold your body, you change your physiology, which then changes the way that you think and feel about yourself. Absolutely. So we can you, even change our DNA, yeah. apparently. Yep, exactly. And so you can switch it on and off based mm. on the experiences you have. Mm. So in that sense, I mean, you know, that's a, that's a typical example, like even in a martial arts setting. If you say, for example, going to a fighting stance, but your fighting stance is loose, it's unfocused, you know, your head is raised, so you're exposing yourself. If somebody moves towards you now with intent, typically what tends to happen for most people is they completely fall apart. Compared to if you start off in a fighting stance that is tight, focused, protective, that not only is good for the experience that you're having when somebody's throwing punches at you, but again, what it does is it changes the way that you feel about yourself. So one of the things I talk about there is that that approach creates what I call psychological armor. It, mm. it bolsters your internal feeling about yourself just by the, how you hold your body. And you know, for anybody listening to this, if they want to delve into this a little bit more deeper, there's, some, there's a really good talk on TED Talks by Amy Cuddy, where she's a Harvard uh, prof- uh, professor, where she has done research into how you hold your body, changes the way that you feel about yourself. Um, and, you know, that, that talk is freely available and people can go and listen to it. But she explains from her perspective about how she did studies on getting people to change the way that they hold their, their mm. body, how they change their posture, and how they change the way that they feel and think about themselves. Great. I will uh, put a link to that video up. I wanted to talk about um, your past again, Rodney, because uh, – 
a lot of people that I speak to are still battling with legacies of the past, emotions, pains that haven't been processed, uh, feelings of guilt, um, feelings of shame, whatever it might be that are often childhood legacies, um, things that, you know, are just part of life. And I see, I see people being impacted by these emotional scars, uh, you know, for their whole lives sometimes. And, and it really, I guess, hurts me on, on one level to see, to see people suffering in this way. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about how you dealt with, you know, the fact that you had a very painful childhood. I mean, it sounds like it was traumatic. It sounds like there was a lot of pain and, uh, you know, physical and I'm sure emotional. Now, how did you make peace with this? Well, you know, it's interesting because I'm not sure that you ever truly make peace with it. I mean, I still struggle with things that, you know, come from that past experience mm. that, uh, you know, if I dwelled on it, it could definitely bring up those old emotions and feelings and sensations and thoughts. But I think the way that I've worked with it is one by not running away from it, by befriending it and recognizing it as part of my journey. And in actual fact, I would say that had I not gone through those experiences, I don't think I would be where I am. So in a way, each one of those experiences, as painful as they were, were teachers and opportunities to learn. Now, I might have not seen it that way at that moment mm. in time, but definitely in hindsight, I see them as, as, as my teacher. That's very as, interesting. So, so, yeah, so that, you've that, reframed yeah. the experience. So using the power of hindsight. I think you need hindsight. to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think you need to do that. You use the power of hindsight and you reframe it rather than always looking at the negative, mm -hmm. saying, okay, well, you know, that wasn't great that that happened to me. If, you, if I'm really honest with myself, it was completely out of my control anyway. It's not like I purposely put myself in a situation for that to happen. It's just the experience that I was having and that's where I was and that's how it was unfolding. But mm. if I look at it in a, from a different lens, yeah. there are aspects of that that allowed me to become who I am today. And had I not had those experiences, we might not be having this conversation. Absolutely. Yes, I think that's a very powerful technique. Um, and it's, it's something that requires a lot of courage and, and mindfulness and the ability to, to stay grounded in the present whilst you go on this journey into the past. And it also requires a level of acceptance, forgiveness, and compassion for yourself and for all those characters in your life who have, who have played a part, like your mother and, I, and my mother and everybody's mother and father. Sure, and, absolutely. You know, I, and I think, I think, I think people are held back by lack of forgiveness, I, I, I think. Have, have you, have you, can you talk to me about the word, what the word forgiveness means in your life? You know, that's a tough one, but I definitely think that when we talk about forgiving is that you need to be able to forgive yourself because, you know, for each one of us, in, even in myself, in hindsight, there were things that I did, experiences that I was involved in that if given an opportunity, I would go back and change it mm -hmm. tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. You know, things that you just don't like that happened. And, mm -hmm. you know, in hindsight, it was like, man, I shouldn't have done that. You have to start first by just forgiving those, you know, those experiences. They were what they were. Mm. They may have seemed right at the time, but today is a very different, you're in a different place. And I think Viktor Frankl said that eloquently where he said the last of human freedoms mm. is your ability to choose your own given attitude in any given moment in time. That's right. And so you get to choose what your attitude is going to be. And mm. you can choose right now what that attitude is going to be. Mm. That's the beautiful thing about being a human being is that we have that ability to make those choices. And that even though there are tons of things happening around us that are completely out of our control, the one thing we always have a control over is how we choose to respond. Mm, that's right. And, I, and, I, and I, I give that book to the people who are special in my life, I, I, I give that book as a gift quite often uh, because it really did change my life. Uh, and that's Viktor Frankl. Um, what's the name? Oh, Man's, Man's Search for Meaning. Meaning. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, yeah. But some people, um, just, to, just to drill down on this point for the, for the good of for our listeners, some people say, yes, okay, I understand in theory that I can choose my attitude. However, 
I can't help but feeling shameful or angry. And they find that they are just, and, 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 they, and, these, and these painful emotions start to change the way that they behave in, in the present life. So in that way, the past is, is smearing their present experience. Um, now, what would you advise for, for people in that position that this is just keeps on happening, that their, their past actions, sorry, their, past, their present action is being changed, their behavior is being changed because of the pain and experiences they've had in the past? I think a starting point is, and this is what I did, was first of all, recognizing it. I don't think you should ever try to push that away. I think that's what people do as well, you know, mm. and, and one of the tr ways that they try to just kind of get away from it is by doing crazy things like doing drugs and mm. getting drunk and, yeah. you know, trying to kill and dull the pain. First of all, get very clear about what that is. What are those things that you feel that are getting in the way and holding you back? And then what would be the opposite to that? What would be the alternative? What would be the positive side? If we could take one experience that we don't like, what would be the positive of that experience? Mm. And then make the concerted effort right now to find a way to have that experience. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be for yourself. It may be creating it for somebody else. Mm. And yeah. I think if you do that, even just small things, you know, nobody's ever been kind to me my whole life. We'll take the time today just to be kind to other people mm. in the small things, be it being polite when you go to the store and, you know, you've, you go to the checkout, you know, the, the, the lady sitting behind that till she doesn't really want to be there. Probably, you know, it's, it's not the best uh, and optimal experience for her life. Just be polite, mm. be kind, you know, do, just do small things. I think we come back to that again. Something we talked about earlier is this idea of the mundane, things that we take for granted. Imagine if you never had mundane experiences and that every experience was an opportunity to become more and to be more positive, mm -hmm. to change the way you typically did things to something more positive, more proactive, more productive. Before you know it, you'll be doing that all the time. Yes. And I think that's, that's, that's crucial. I think also, you know, it's very important is that, you know, this is something that I had to learn is that you need to look at who are the top, fee top five people in your environment and are those top five people that you hang around with most conducive to you moving towards the direction that you want to and becoming the person you want to be, especially if we're talking about changing destructive behaviors. And so it, as hard as it is, it might mean that you have to change the people that you surround yourself with as well. Because you are the product of the top five people you hang with. That's what they say. I, I like to view uh, that topic. Yeah, I think that, that, that it's a little bit of a cliche or a metaphor. Or, or There's definitely truth in that. Um, but I also like to think that our physical environment and how we feed our consciousness in the, term, in the form of media uh, plays a large role in, in who we are as well. Oh, absolutely. Sure, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, it's never a one size fits all. But mm. I think those are things that you can change. Mm, I absolutely. mean, you may never, you never, you're never going to change the media. You're never going to change the messages that are pumped in, you know, pumped at us day in and day out. You can change what that you is, read. You could change what you read. But even just, you know, getting on, you know, if you were in New York or something like that, getting on the subway, I mean, you're just bombarded all the time by mm. just constant messages, advertising, even stuff that you don't even want to be a part of is there. Yes. Um, but you can change your attitude about it. You can change, like you said, what you want to read about. Mm. You can change who you want to hang with. Mm. People say you can't do that, but you can. For sure you can. So, yeah. you, 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 if you want it badly enough, you can do that. And so all of these things culminate into a completely, completely different way of being. You mm. can change how you respond in your car in the morning when you're driving to work and somebody cuts you off. That's coming back to what Viktor Frankl said, where you get to choose your own attitude. If you're flying off, off the handle in road rage, you chose to respond that way. If you can choose to respond that way, you could also choose to respond in a completely different way. Okay, let's make, it, let's make it practical for people, okay? Because I, I get that. Let's use that same example, Rodney. Okay, so you're in the car. Somebody cuts you off. You feel the, the rage coming, the red mist coming, and you feel irrationality just, just coming, and you feel out of control. That's the feeling that it is. 
So what steps would you advise someone take in that position? Well, one of the things, of course, it comes back to something we've been talking about throughout this whole episode is this idea of being mindful. Because I definitely feel in those kinds of experiences, mindfulness plays an important role. Now, part of your ability to not go down that rabbit hole into that aggressive cycle, as you typically would potentially do, is being able to be mindful. So part of that is going to be how much practice have you been putting into that. But one of the practical tools, as simple as it sounds, is to focus on your breath. Specifically, yes. what you'd want to do is you'd want to focus on the out-breath. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is in that experience, in that road rage experience, what you are doing is you are activating your autonomic nervous system. Mm. Specifically, what you're activating is your sympathetic nervous system, mm -hmm. which is your fight and flight response. That's mm -hmm. the part that was designed through evolution to get you ready to either fight or to flee whichever one seemed the most and the best choice, mm -hmm. that, that system kicks off any time you're in a situation like that where somebody cuts you off, you start feeling that emotions, you start getting angry, that is your sympathetic nervous system kicking off because it sees and feels a threat. Even if it's not really a real threat, it's still going to respond in the same way because it's not designed to make a decision about it. Yep. It just does its thing. Hence, it's called autonomic nervous system. It's automatic. Now, when you focus on breathing, specifically the exhale, what you do is you activate the other part of the system, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And the parasympathetic nervous system is designed to calm you down, to bring you back to homeostasis. So in a typical example is, let's say you were in a very stressful situation, your sympathetic nervous system kicked off, it got you ready for this fight or flight or freeze response, that's another aspect of it. Let's say nothing happened or the situation changed and things kind of just you know, went away for a moment. There was an opportunity for reprieve. Typically, your parasympathetic nervous system immediately kicks in because what it's trying to do is flush out those chemicals, which were great if you were in a fight situation, but are not great when the fight situation is no longer around. And it's also designed to bring you back, your body back to homeostasis and to get you back to a more calm state. That's why, for example, if somebody's been in a highly stressful situation, let's say they've been in a car accident, initially you have that jolt of adrenaline and everything else that's required to survive that situation. But once everything is over, you start calming down, and typically people will report, well, I feel really tired. You know, I feel like I need to go and sleep, especially if you've had a shock to your system. That aspect of feeling tired and you know, wanting to go sleep is your parasympathetic nervous system doing its job. It's getting you back to homeostasis, calming you down. And so your out-breath, coming back to that, is what they found through research is that when you focus on the out-breath, you actually engage your parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. And the our whole idea around, around the autonomic nervous system and the fact that it's automatic is that you have little or no control consciously over it. So if you're feeling stressed out and you say to yourself, calm down, relax, anybody who's tried to do that will tell you that it doesn't work, man. We've all tried that, right? You could tell yourself to calm down all you like. It doesn't make any difference. <laughs> and the reason why it's not making any difference is because you have no conscious control over that. Your body has perceived a threat and it's doing what it's supposed to do in order to engage or survive that threat. But the one way that you do have some control over it is through your out-breath. So mm -hmm. by focusing on long exhales, by focusing on that out-breath, you engage that parasympathetic nervous system. And so mm -hmm. even though you're feeling all this kind of emotional stuff coming up, you're feeling that charge, if you just remind yourself in that moment to focus on the out-breath, you immediately, as I've been saying, invoke the opposite part of that system, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is designed to calm you down to recenter you mm. and to bring your body back to homeostasis. That's fascinating, man. And I'm glad you brought that up. Really, the, the power of breathing, the power of our breath is something that I think we should all try and educate as many people as we can about. Um, breathing is so much more than just survival. It's, it's about thriving, isn't it? How we control our breath really controls yeah. um, our, our, our full mind-body intelligence. 
So well, there you said it, right? There you said it, the whole, whole idea of the mind-body intelligence. And so what we've just been talking about is an embodied experience. Mm, that's right. You know, because exactly what I said, you don't have conscious control over this. You could try to think as much as you like about calming yourself down and saying, yourself, saying to yourself, I, should, I need to calm down, I need to relax. That's not going to do anything. It's you know the, those physiological changes are happening if if you want it to happen or not. There's a threat. It perceives a threat. Does what it needs to do to survive that threat. So let's talk about you fear, Rodney. Yeah. Sorry to yeah. interrupt you. Um, no, no problem. I just I wanted to talk about fear because um, yeah, I, ha I have a friend, and um, the situation is is this that she's become fearful surfing waves of a certain size. She used to be comfortable in it. She had a bit of an accident. And now when the waves get to a certain size, she has a very strong physical reaction. And mm. she gets the fear, the nausea, the butterflies, the adrenaline, the cortisol, and she can go no further um, with that. And a lot of people get this fear with, with heights or with going to the ocean. And um, have you developed techniques and tools to to help people deal with that reaction? Sure. But I mean, I think it comes back to what we've been talking about. Again, it's about it being mindful because, mm. you know, when you kind of said it yourself in your description, mm. she had a bad experience. And what happens now is every time she faces a wave that's a little bit bigger mm. than she thinks that she can handle, there's that idea of thinking. That's kind of where all this quote unquote fear response comes in. So what's really holding her back it's not the wave, it's the thought about the wave. And what is the thought about the wave? It's the narrative, it's the story. What's interesting to me is that a lot of times if you tell somebody that, they say, well, I'm not actually, I don't actually, I'm not actually thinking about that past experience when that's happening. I don't actually have that story. The reality is, is that we get so hooked onto our stories, they become so part of our everyday experience that most of the time people don't even know when they're thinking about their story. Mm. It's just happening on autopilot. And so typically the way that I would approach that is by, first of all, teaching her about mindfulness, why mindfulness is so important, why mindfulness allows a person to have the, the, those embodied experiences, those emotions, those feelings, those sensations to arise. But what it's typically going to be able to help you do is circumvent the story. And so to go out each time into the waves and start off on waves that she can handle but is still stretching her a little bit and get her to be mindful in that moment. So again, coming back to this idea of being mindful in action hmm. until she starts feeling that she can handle that and then slowly, incrementally moving it up a notch to a little bit of a bigger wave, to a little bit of bigger wave. So what's actually happen happening there is what we could term progressive stress inoculation mm, progressive right, stress if you've inoculation had, yeah if you've if you've had a bad experience and you don't want to enter back into that experience because the emotional response that you have it doesn't help you i feel if you just throw somebody quote unquote back into the deep end what you want to do is you want to start in the shallow end teach this tool of being mindful in action and slowly start going a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, till finally you find yourself back in the deep end, but no longer having those emotional responses. Or even if you still are, you're not attaching to it, and you start to realize mm -hmm. that even though I'm feeling or thinking a certain way, that doesn't stop me from doing what I want to do. Mm. Awesome so advice. I'll give you an example. Yeah, so I'll give you an example which I think is for me has always been a powerful example is that I'm talking to you right now. And uh, for a lot of people that might be very scary. You know, it's, it's uh, public speaking, for example, most people hate that. So let's say you're one of those people and you hate public speaking. If we were in say a hotel room in the morning and we had to both go out and give a speech on a stage in front of 500 people, that morning you wake up and you know that you're going to be doing that. You're going to feel all this emotional responses, these feelings and, and sensations, be it butterflies. You know, maybe you've got clammy hands, your mouth's gone dry. You start defining that as fear, anxiety, 
as soon as you start doing that, you start creating a story around it. Maybe you're saying to yourself, I don't know if I'm ready for this. You know, have I planned enough? You're going through all these kind of contingency plans in your head. I'm in my hotel room. I'm probably feeling the same feelings and sensations, the butterflies, the, you know, the clammy hands, the dry mouth. But I'm, let's say I define that as excitement. So I recognize that movement within my body as excitement. If we look at those two examples, we're both having the same physiological changes. The only difference between me and you is how we defined it, the narrative that we created around it. But the physiological changes are exactly the same. Mm. So in that sense, what you find is in most instances, you know, because we, you know, we're all human beings, we respond to situations emotionally, you know, in very, very similar ways. But the one, the reason why one person can do something and the other person can't is not because those emotional responses are different, it's how they define those emotional responses that really defines if they're going to be able to do it or not. So in my example, you know, I'm defining that movement inside, the butterflies and so forth as excitement, you're defining it as fear. But if you break it down, physiologically, we're both having the same physiological experiences. Mm. The only difference is, is the narrative, the story that we attach to it. So in coming back to your example of a friend now feeling, you know, going in, into the water and going on those specific waves, those bigger waves as freaking her out, it's not the wave and it's not the physiological response that's the problem. It's the narrative, the story that she's creating around it. And really what probably is happening is she's holding on to what happened originally, that mm. scary experience. That's what she's holding on to. So the way to get around it is is to find a way to change the story. And the only way that you can change the story is first by starting to be mindful, to practice mindfulness. Because what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is having experience in the present moment, crucially without judgment. And when you don't judge what is happening inside or even outside and the way that you respond to it, you're not judging it, what you're doing is you're taking the story out of the equation. Mm, and when you take the story sense. out of the equation you are now in a very different place. And so this was one of the realizations for me was that just because you feel or think a certain way doesn't define the outcome. So in my experience in martial arts, there are, there are mornings where you wake up, you feel completely amped, you're excited, you want to get to training, you have all these plans of what you're going to do, and you get down there and everything goes in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. right? Conversely, there are other days where I don't want to get up. I don't want to go and train. I'd, I'd rather sleep in a little bit longer. But somehow I get myself out of bed and I go down. And on those days, I have the best experiences. Now, if we look at it from a conventional wisdom standpoint, that shouldn't happen. If I'm feeling amped and pumped and ready to do this thing and I'm feeling excited, I should have a good experience. And if I'm not feeling like I want to have, you know, that I want to be there, that I'm being negative about it, I should have a bad experience. So how is it possible then on those days when I don't feel like it that I have some amazing experiences? I'm sure you've experienced that too, where maybe you didn't want to go surf that day. You know, you didn't really feel up to it, but you've gone out and you've had the best experience. I would argue that the reason that that happens is because on those quote-unquote negative days, you didn't have any expectations. So you didn't set up an expectation, a story about how you wanted this thing to unfold. You just actually just went and just had the experience. Mm. You just got up, you went down, and you did it. And so in a way, what you actually did was on those days, you were far more mindful. That's right. That's right. Wow, man, we could keep on talking for hours, uh, Rodney, but uh, such is reality in this present moment in time <laughs> that sure. we have to wrap this up. So I just uh, can you just tell people how they can uh, find out more about the work that you do, your book, your courses, all that sort of stuff? Sure, yeah. So I wrote a book about this whole idea of you know, using martial arts as a catalyst for personal transformation. And the, really, the book is about inner management skills. Even though I wrote it for martial artists, it's not just for martial artists. So you know, even if you've never touched martial arts a day in your life, if you were a surfer, for example, I think you would love the book because I think you get a lot out of it and to find out more about the book all people have to do is go to fullcontactliving.org the book is up there there's a free online video course 
Um, and there's also details about my workshop. And then the other way to get hold of me is just via my own personal site, which is coachrodneyking.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Rodney. It's been really illuminating and it's great to hear your perspective, which has been forged through martial arts, Eastern philosophy, but more importantly, just through your own life experience, you know, the school of hard knocks. And uh, it's been fantastic to hear your story. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, guys, I'm sure you can agree that was a super interesting conversation with Rodney. I had to cut it off because we're running out of time, but I could have kept on going for sure. Um, The main takeaways for me from that is just really the power of mindfulness. Often people, I think the word has become weakened because it's become such a cliche or such a a widely used word in uh, mainstream media. And people are like, oh, mindfulness this, mindfulness that. And... I'd really like people to take away the fact that mindfulness is really the practice of every day, minute to minute, second to second meditation. It's, a, it's about, it's, it's almost, it's the most powerful form of, of meditation in a sense because it's not on the meditation stool. We're not on a retreat where we have nobody cutting us off in traffic or winding us up the wrong way. This is an opportunity to practice a certain state of mind during the heat of battle of our everyday lives when our boss is throwing more work at us when our partner just doesn't understand uh, what we're trying to explain or trying to achieve um, when we're facing these conflicts and battles in our everyday life mindfulness is what can change our attitude and therefore change our entire experience and therefore rewrite our future because basically anytime you're suffering you're in pain you're struggling it's, it's a form of time traveling you're doing. You're traveling to the past or to the future. And mindfulness really keeps you locked into the present moment. And there's never anything but perfection in the present moment. So, guys, I'd love your help. Um, I'm going to reach out to you in, in full radical honesty and vulnerability. Apparently, there's 25,000 people that have listened to this podcast. Um, but I don't have very good engagement with them. I don't know who's listening. I don't know what they think of the show. And I don't know what they'd like to hear more of. So I'd love to get some feedback. If you could just email me at Jiro at the Flow State Collective, connect with me on Facebook. I'm the only Jiro Taylor in the universe, I think. Um, and go to iTunes or Stitch or whatever app that you use and leave a review and a rating um, so more people can listen to this podcast or so that I can know that you are listening and appreciating this podcast. It would mean the world to me because I'm putting a lot of effort into this and I'm getting a lot of value. I know certain people are getting a lot of value, but I haven't heard from 25,000 people um, about the value that I've been getting. So that's it, guys. Uh, tune in next time. We've got some fantastic uh, interviews coming up in the near future. And um, yeah, here's to a life and flow. <laughs>